Um, I am... Uh, I'm, I'm really excited about it. I want to tell you just real quick, as, as Kim mentioned this beautiful mess series, I think this is going to be something that could change our, our communities. You know, one of the things we, we focus on a lot is how, what's, what the, we say a lot here, that the, the most beautiful expression of the church is beyond these walls. It's out in the communities, in our neighborhoods, and that kind of stuff. And I feel like this series, this beautiful mess series, is going to be, a, it's going to have a powerful impact in our community. I actually think that we could probably have 400, 500 extra people that would join us to consider what, what does the Bible say? What does the church tie? What do we, when we talk about all of these things, from friendships to marriage to parenting, whatever, Doug's actually going to you know, do three week, a three-week chunk of that series, Doug Fields, just on parenting. And um, I think this is a great opportunity for us to be able to see people introduced to, have an understanding about the beauty of relationships that way that God intended them to be. And so if that's something you're, you feel like, man, you can get behind, you want to pray for that, that would be great. But I think we could see a lot of people coming to decide and make some decisions about how they live differently in their relationships because of it. Uh, if you're new with us, it's a great, this is a great time to be at Mariner's Mission Viejo. We are, uh, we're in a series right now called The Outsider's Guide. First, it was to Jesus, but now because we're in the month of December, it's The Outsider's Guide to Christmas. But it's, still, it's a walk through Luke. The book of Luke, is a, or the gospel of Luke, is, um, is written by a guy who doesn't have the Jesus heritage, meaning he's not Jewish. But he's writing about all of, the, all of Jesus, who he is, and trying to create an order, by his own words, he's trying to write an orderly account of all the stories of Jesus. And so he's going, is this really for real? Is this actually what happened? I want to make sure we got this right. And so if you're looking for those kind of questions, is this really for real? Is Jesus actually who he says he was? Well, here's a guy's account who's trying to present an orderly version of, of, of that story. And so it's been very great. I've talked to a lot of people who are like, hey, I'm bringing my friends you know, you guys have been talking in like plain, normal person language about this kind of stuff. And it's been really cool to not, not you know, just be able to bring friends here. And I've met some of you guys who are new with us and it's been great. So um, I'm glad that you're here. If you're new, very excited that you decided to join us. This is going to be a, a great um, weekend as we lead into um, Christmas. So would you do this? As we are about ready to go crazy with Christmas, would you exhale with me as we pray? And we'll pause for just a moment. So let's, let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, we are, um, we are on the cusp of insanity. <laughs> we, are, we, are all, we are prepared to be exhausted if we're not already. We are um, imagining what is to come over the next few days. And um, Lord, I would um, I'd venture to say that most of us in here have, um, while we might have some joy, we have some, um, some anxiousness, some anxiety. And Lord, there is um, there's much to be grateful for and there's much to be excited about, but there's a lot that we're also preoccupied with. And so, Lord, as, um, as we prepare and get ready for everything that's ahead of us, we just want to take a moment to pause. That we, might, that we might, in some capacity, literally or otherwise, we might exhale. And that we might hear from you. And so, we ask that you would speak to us in the power of the Holy Spirit in the stillness of, our, of, um, of this moment, in this quiet, would you speak, Father, to us? Jesus, would we have hearts that are oriented toward you? And all of our preparation and planning and everything that we're taking care of, would it be our hearts that are the ones that are, t- that are taking care of, that are prepared for you at Christmas, Jesus? 
It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Hey, if you want to follow along with us, there is a, a little a bulletin in, I mean, sorry, inside your bulletin there's an outline. You can pull that out and follow along. If you brought your own Bible, we'll be in Luke chapter 3. If you are, you know, if you're, or if you're kind of digital Bible, you can do that one in Luke 3. Um, or if you just want to watch on the screen, great. But whatever helps you follow along, that's what we'll be doing. But as you're doing that, I was thinking as we're um, in the final moments of preparation for Christmas, a lot of us have this kind of, this, we literally, I mean, some of us will literally stand in front of the mirror and psych ourselves up like it's game time. I'm surprised we don't have like the black, eye black on our eyes, like getting ready for this. Because there's a part of us that goes, man, here comes our family. This is so great. Our families, this is awesome. Our family's here. Oh man, this is awesome, right? And there's a part of us that's kind of psyching ourselves up to be with those people who we love, but we don't, we're glad we don't live with them, that, those kind of people, and some of them are going to live with us for a couple days. Woo! Right? And there's a part of us that's just going, my gosh, we have to get ready for this. And trust me, even though they're crazy and insane and they do obnoxious things, those people right now, if they're not already in your house, they might be sitting next to them right now, like, you know, don't nudge anybody or whatever, but... Those people who are on their way to your house are doing the exact same thing about you. Oh, I got to go visit those obnoxious people. I'm so glad I don't live with them. They're wonderful and I love them, but I'm glad I don't live with them. They do things like they have the toilet paper go underneath the roll instead of over the top of it. How do they live? I mean, there's just that. Those people are psyching themselves up too. Now at our house, there's lots to do. And I I did not realize until I was married. And guys who are like dating, single, you're like... (laughs) You don't even know what's coming until you're married. I mean, it's like crazy what kind of stuff is expected. If you're dating someone, you might be helping out and you're probably driving around and doing something. But there's like this crazy thing that happens in the preparation for like family members to come visit. I did not realize this. And it is like, there is so much that, ha- like I'm looking at um, Amanda and she's like, all of our kids spent three hours cleaning their rooms yesterday. Like, you know what I got? And, you know, it's like, oh my gosh, who is this? She, there's this, you know, kids clean your rooms and there's vacuuming. And then all of a sudden there's Jeff paint this. I'm painting. We're painting before Christmas. We're painting. Amanda, the dog's in the paint. Give him a paint roll. I don't care. I mean, it's like, oh my gosh, what are we doing? You know, like this is, we have to look like we don't live in our house. That's exactly right. You know, it's like, this is what we're doing. And, and there is this, there, I mean, I talked to someone this week, it was a great story, she goes, someone in her office, she goes, my, my, husband, my husband's rearranging stuff in the garage. She's like, what are you doing? And he says, you asked me to do this. That was six months ago. <laughs> Which in guy world, we're like right on time. I mean, I was like, yeah, I'll get to it. Now I got time. And so she's like, that's not what we need done. Get back in the house, there's stuff we got to do. I mean, every, I'm, on, I'm not kidding you. Every family picture in our house has been changed to new pictures. These are things we do at Christmas. There is so much. And I look at Amanda and I realize they're like, like this person, this poor person who's trying to clean up their garage. He's, you know, I'm with you, brother. But there is, um, there is, this, there, there is this moment where I realize I, I should not take any initiative here. I just need to ask this question. What, what should I do? What, what should I do? Like, I, I'll do whatever you want me to do. Just tell me what to do because I don't want to be cleaning the garage and then get chastised for that. So just what, what do you want me to do? Because I'm all about that. We're ready. I'm because there's a, whole, there's a whole mess of stuff that we got to do to get ready for Christmas. And it's exactly the same thing that's happening in the first century for people who are getting ready for Jesus. There is, everybody's essentially going, what, what should we do? What are we supposed to be doing? And there's a guy who's kind of spearheading this effort of getting everybody prepared for Jesus. That guy's name is John the Baptist, or John the Baptizer. And here's what it says in Luke 3, beginning in verse 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, this is the guy who came after Augustus, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, 
Herod, Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, Tetrarch of Iturea and Trachonitis, and uh, Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene, all these wonderfully important people. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Now, here's all that's being said. There are power structures that people know about. There's, you know, Caesar, then there's the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, and there's these other Herods and all these other people who are governing stuff that's happening in this land. And these are the formal power structures that are, you know, exerting their force. And then there's this weird guy who's this voice in the wilderness who is, you know, by some accounts, he's, he's eating bugs and honey and he's just this weird mountain man out in the, in the wilderness. And it says that he's the son of a guy named Zechariah. Now remember, if you remember a couple weeks ago, if you were to open your Bible and begin at Luke chapter 1, at about verse 5, you'd see that there's this story that isn't about Jesus. It's about someone else. It's about this couple, this elderly couple, Elizabeth and Zechariah. And they don't have a kid. And the Bible calls them righteous and devout, all this stuff, these good things about them. But there's a weird thing culturally. If you're an old person, you have no kids, God must be cursing you for something. And an angel visits them and says, you're going to have a son. He visits this guy, Zachariah. And he says, you're going to have a son. His name's going to be John. And he's the one who's going to be the preparer. He's going to get everything ready for God's person, the anointed person, the Messiah, or in, or in Greek, the Christ. He's going to get everything ready for that guy. Verse 3. He went into all the country and around Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, there's, there's a lot of like Christianese in this verse that I just want to unpack a little bit for us. First is this. John's going out. He's telling, he has a message for his own people. This is for people who already belong as part of what we would call God's covenant community. They're the Jews. The, they're, you know, their ancestry goes back to the Israelites. They speak Hebrew. As, you know, that's them. They belong to God. They worship one God, Yahweh. That's who the, these people. Now, he's doing this thing called baptism. When I, when I grew up in the church, when I was like in junior high, I thought that John the Baptist was the guy who invented this concept of like dunking people. You know, like, I got this cool idea, you guys. We're going to go out to the river and we'll put people in the water. And it will just be like amazing. Like, I thought that's what he invented. Like, Ben Franklin discovered electricity. John the Baptist discovered baptism. But, okay, but he, he did, in a sense, I guess that's sort of true. But here's what happened. The word baptism in the Greek is a word that means immersion. It means literally to put underwater. And it is what he's doing. It's how he gets that name. Perhaps a better name might be, him, might be for him. John the, the Immerser is probably a better name for him. And the idea is that in, in immersion, you are absorbing what is the, the subject of what is, uh, what would you call that? The, the material, the water into which you're being immersed. In other words, you take those characteristics on. And... John is a guy who understands a Jewish tradition that Luke is writing about, which is Luke is trying to figure out a little bit. In the Jewish tradition, there is ritual washing, washing, which looked a lot like baptism. It's called a mikvah. And people who had done something that would otherwise or have encountered things that would make make them unpure or unclean, along with some other things, one of the things they would do to re-enter life with God and life among the community, among the people, because some things were so unclean, you had to live outside the camp. But one of the things you would do to mark that, you're, that, that time of um, exile is over is that people would be washed. They would have this cleansing. And so what John is doing is he's introducing people to this idea or reintroducing them to, you got we want to return you back to God. And he has this word here, this word repentance, which repent is like, it, it's like if you're going to mock Christians, you will use a southern accent and you will say the word repent. <laughs> repent! I mean, you know, like that's just the way... 
people want to mock a Christian, that's how you do Oh, you Christians, repent. I just say in the name of the Lord, repent. I mean, it's like, you don't know what that means. But that's just what they say. Now, the word repent. The word in Greek is the word metanoios. You see it, it's in your, it's in your I wrote it in your, in your notes. That's a word that means to think differently. That's, a, that's the best translation you get for that word, repentance, in Greek is the word metanoios. But there's another word. Remember, again, this is, you know, John's speaking two languages. Probably, he's probably speaking three. But he speaks predominantly Aramaic and Hebrew. And there's another word when we talk about repentance that, the, that Jews would have spoken. They still speak it today. It's the word teshuva. And it means this, that there are two turns that you make in this kind of act of repentance. One is away from the things that are keeping you from the way of life that God intended for you. That's the first turn. But the second turn is a return to God, a U-turn. So your life is going in this direction. You've got to turn away from some things. But ultimately, it's about returning back to life with God. And John is saying to these people who would have already said, we belong to God's covenant community of people. We're his people. He's saying to them, let's have this baptism. Let's reintroduce. We'll talk about this idea of being brought back into God's community, his presence, not just because we wash ourselves, but because our lives are reoriented toward him. And that will be the way that we prepare for Jesus. John's preparation is about Jesus, and it's about this idea, this, this basic concept which says, not everything in my life is perfect. It's an acknowledgement that there are things that are not exactly as they should be, and so it is this invitation to turn around. Verse 4, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, this is from Isaiah chapter 40, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked road shall become straight, the rough way smooth, and all people will see God's salvation, God's rescue. The word salvation in Hebrew is the word Yeshua, which is Jesus' name, Yeshua. But here's what you get. This guy John, this voice in the wilderness, is going to make straight a path. He's going to prepare everybody so that they'll be able to understand and know and see Jesus. That in some capacity, everybody will see God's rescue because John has prepared a way. Now, when I look at this, when I see the imagery here, hills are made low, paths are made straight, all that kind of stuff. It sounds kind of, it sounds kind of romantic. It sounds kind of wonderful. It sounds like there's this sort of passive beauty to this whole process. Except that that's not the way John actually describes the bulldozing of what he's about to tell his own people. Listen, to this. this is unbelievable. Verse 7. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him. Notice how bad at PR he is. You brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? <laughs> okay, now let me stop right there. First of all, so he's telling everybody to turn their hearts back to God and not only just to simply, you know, have a private moment with Jesus or, you know, with God that they just sort of turn their heart. No, no, it's like your whole life needs to look different. And they start coming out to him and then he tells them all they're snakes. Snakes are always a reference to the enemies of God's people. And he's talking to his own people saying, you brood of vipers, calling them snakes. Now, if you publicly insult someone at this time in this place, generally what you will do, if you've been publicly shamed, like, like he's shaming these people, is that you will invoke your own heritage. You'll go back and say, yeah, 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 that might be true, but my dad's 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 dad, my, all the way back, we're part of a, a pretty sacred group of people. And, he say, and John anticipates this. He knows they're going to go, you just call them you know, snakes, and they're going to go, oh yeah, well, we're connected to this guy Abraham. Check it out. Look what he says in verse 8. 
Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, meaning don't just say you're going to do it, actually do things differently. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, meaning we're, we don't need to worry about this. We're part of God's covenant people, it doesn't matter. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham, meaning he doesn't need you people. <laughs> Whoa. Nine, verse nine, the axe is already at the root of the trees and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Whoa. Now, you have to notice here is a couple things. One is that God's most, like this harshest criticisms and judgments are generally for his people that already belong to him. It isn't that John is speaking to the rest of the Greek-speaking world in the Roman Empire. Hey, everybody, he's speaking to his own people, the ones to whom they say that they belong to God. And he says, God's not real excited about the way you guys have been doing this, and I need you to know it. And they have this moment here. Now remember, there's this picture of the roads being made straight and the paths being laid out, the mountains and the hills being laid out. Just this beautiful picture. And yet this is the way John talks to them. Evidently, the smoothing out of the roads and the lowering of the hills and all that stuff isn't a smooth process or a delicate process. One of the things I do on Sunday, you know, it's, it's hard to explain, but on Sunday afternoon, I'm exhausted. I did not, it's like, it's a, it's like a zombie kind of exhaustion. As soon as, as soon as I stop talking, which you're like, he could hurry that up anytime you want here. But as soon as I stop talking and get home and I sit down, I'm like, I, I'm, I am worthless. I'm so tired. And one of the things I do is I record, I watch football games. And so... Um, you know, and, and if I fall asleep, that's okay. But I, there, last, last week, I'm watching a great game. And I'm, I'm not a fan of either of these teams. Some of you, it was the most depressing game you ever saw in your life. And others of you, it was like the greatest moment of your life. And you watched the Dallas-Green Bay game last week. Okay? Now, it is like, it's the best. I, I love, I record the games. I, can, I, it's, I love watching them, you know, at home. And I'm just kind of, you know, whoever, whichever of my kids wants to watch with me, great. If they don't, they'll draw or hang out or whatever else they're doing. But I'm just relaxed. I'm watching this game. And here's what's happening Green Bay come, they're, they're down by 23 points. They have their backup quarterback in, who basically everybody's lost faith in, but he manages to have this monster for, uh, second half game. And the go-ahead touchdown, Green Bay is on like the three or four yard line. And they do not disguise what they're going to do. They're going to give it to their, their rookie tailback, a guy named Eddie Lacy, who's had a great season. And they're going to give it to him. There's not even a wide receiver. There's not even an attempt to say we're going to throw this ball. And the reason why they do that is because of this. They bring in a guy from the Green Bay Packers, uh, from the defensive side of the ball, a guy named B.J. Raji. B.J. Raji is 337 pounds. He can squat 1,000 pounds. There's a YouTube video of this guy squatting 1,000 pounds. I mean, he's got 1,000 pounds. He's just like, bop, like that. I mean, he's just huge. He's the strongest, biggest dude ever. Now, all the quarterback is going to do is go hike, Hand it to Eddie Lacy. And Eddie Lacy will follow B.J. Raji. And B.J. Raji will run into people and they will bounce off of him. <laughs> and that's what happens. Hike, bam. And B.J. Raji is sending people backwards and Eddie Lacy walks into the end zone. And I went, oh, that's what preparing the way looks like. <laughs> John the Baptist is in effect doing that kind of leading of the way. And it, although the paths might be straight, eventually... Somehow he's kind of hammering his own people saying, there is some stuff we got to sort out. And they say, hearing this incredible criticism, which all of us probably in our world would probably go, you know, could you tone it down a little? <laughs> I mean, let's just find another way to say that. You know, can we use our, our words without using accusatory tones? I mean, whatever it is we're going to say. 
But there is this moment in which those people are confronted with the reality of their life, which is that isn't, which is that not everything's working out the way it's supposed to be. That they aren't, as we all are, a work in, they aren't they aren't perfect, and they're a work in progress. And they, for whatever reason, believe him. They go, okay. If that's really true, then what they do is they ask probably the most critical question. They ask the most telling, beautiful, honest question. What they say is this in verse 10. What should we do? The crowd asked. What should we do then? All right, we know that God's not super excited about how we've been conducting ourselves. You're the one preparing the way for the Messiah. This, who we don't even know who he is yet. These people don't know who he is yet. What, what are we supposed to do? Now they don't say... John, how do we have, how do we renew our private encounter with God in our own little private spiritual way? They ask a do question. In fact, the word do is repeated a bunch in this passage, these next couple of verses. So here's what he says, verse 11. John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. Anyone who has food should do the same. So the people, he just looks at the whole group, who everyone's coming out there to be baptized and, you know, make their own U-turn with God. He just goes, all right, if you've got two shirts, share one. If you've got some extra food, share it. That's for everybody here. Everybody's kind of like, okay, we get that. That makes sense. And then he goes on to the next group of people. Verse 12. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you're required to, he told them. Now, leave that up on the screen for a second. Notice the word even. If you have your, a pen, you want to underline it or circle it. This is a pretty interesting word. Tax collectors are people in the ancient world who would be employed by the Roman government, but they're people that are of the occupied peoples. In other words, Rome comes in, conquers the land, and says we need people to collect money to sponsor this empire where we, you know, we, we're oppressing you. Who wants to do it? And tax collectors say, well, if we'll get paid a lot, can we do it? And Rome says, sure, you'll get paid a lot. We want our money. Whatever else you take, we're not watching. We don't even care. So a tax collector, now I know, I realize there's people in our church, I know there's a couple, at least two people I know of in our church that work for the IRS, and while we love the IRS, uh, we, you know, we love you guys, the rest, everybody else in the IRS, they're lame. You guys are great, but everybody else, they're lame. This is a whole different thing, what we're talking about here. These are people who are basically government-sponsored rip-off artists of their own people. So they go to people and they say, hey, you know, Rome needs to take some, some money for, you know, taxes. And they go, but I also need to send, we're also going to go on a killer vacation. And uh, I'm also going to put a jacuzzi in, and, um, you know, I got I to, gotta you know, gosh, I got to pay for the country club. So I'm going to need a little extra money. And all of the people, the Jews, hated these guys, the tax collectors. Often in the Bible, you see phrases like even tax collectors. You see this distinction. Jesus was accused of hanging out with um, tax collectors and other notorious sinners. I mean, this is like, they are in a whole category of evil. And Luke identifies even these people who never had any intention of turning their lives around. These people who, who are notorious for robbing God's own people, even those guys are standing next to John, and they say, what should we do? And John says, don't rip people off. Don't take more than you're asked to take. Just don't rip people off. Anymore. Verse 14. Then some soldiers asked him, what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. The word extort in the Greek literally means to shake violently. I think that's unbelievable. Basically, literally, it's translated, don't do any more shakedowns. 
Like, don't, don't walk into people, accuse them of stuff, and shake them until they give you your money. Be content with what you already have. You have power. You're a guy with a spear and a sword, and you can walk in and, you know, threaten people, and they kind of have to do it. Don't do that. Now, what's surprising is this. John doesn't say to these people who are working in these corrupt industries, he doesn't say, you know what you guys should do? Stop being tax collectors. Go be a farmer. And you soldiers, go do something else. Go learn how to, like, you know, be a carpenter or something else. Right? He, doesn't, he just says, no, no, no. He doesn't know what he says. He says, you work in corrupt systems, but just live uncorruptible lives. Just because you can do certain things doesn't mean you should do certain things. Just because everybody does these things or everybody expects you to do them doesn't mean that you should do them. You know, I get asked a lot. People who are, you know, really unhappy with their jobs. And I realize there are, there are really difficult job situations. Some of you are like, I mean, it's really, it's a, every day it is like, I, I do this for my family and I hate what I'm doing and I, my boss is cruel and unusual and all kinds of things like that. Now I get that. But people ask me all the time, they think they should leave their job and join the church staff because they believe the church staff is all just gumdrops and rainbows and unicorns and joy, which it is. But, <laughs> but there's a belief that says something is, it's so much better over here if I was in a healthier, better industry. But can I tell you, church people are crazy. <laughs> we are, I mean, we're, I mean, so anyways. But they have this sense that says, I should leave my job. Now, maybe you should. But what John would say, apparently, is, you live, in a, you live in a corruptible society, but you don't have to be corrupted by it. In other words, what he says to everybody is there's kind of these markers here of what would look like for a prepared heart for Jesus. It's generosity. It's integrity. Uh, it's justice. And it's contentment. So just because you can do certain things does not in any way legitimize that you should do them. There's an outward life that gives evidence of what God has done in the U-turned kind of life. Now, we can fake the outward life for a little while, even if our heart is corrupt. But if the inside of our own life is rightly oriented toward God, we can't help but live that out. There's a story I want you to see of a woman named Harmony who took this so incredibly literally in her own life. And I want you to check out the story. I think it's apropos of Christmas. So about a month ago, Mariners did a coat drive to collect coats for the homeless in our community. And I would walk past the collection area and, you know, there was coats and I would think that was a really great thing for people to do. I'm so glad people care about, you know, that population. And as I'd walk by, there'd be more and more coats piling up. And at one point I walked past and God just clearly spoke to me and he said, Harmony, you need to get two coats for your family. shoved down that part of my story and even my parents and I just didn't speak to them um, anymore and I've had a limited relationship with them ever since. Um, I really struggled to grasp that part of my identity and um, it's really caused me to be less than who God has called me to be. So I decided to say yes uh, to God calling me to take those coats and to be obedient. And so I picked out two coats and I went up and I saw them and 
hours with them. Um, we cooked dinner, we hung out, we talked, um, we took silly photos, you know, and um, got to enjoy having the coats. And that was probably the first time I've spent more than 30 minutes with them in years. And just having that time of relationship with them um, really helped me to see that they are still who God has put as my parents and who I need to embrace as part of my current life and not just part of my past. So I left and I went home and my mom called me later and thanked me for the coats. And, but more than that, she said, thank you so much for taking the time um, to spend with us. And it just struck me how important relationship is and since then she's um, called me more and we've started to enter into having a relationship that is part of my present and not my past and I've been able to just um, embrace all of who God is calling me to be and felt more myself than I have in years um, and it's a journey and it's still enrolling and it'll be interesting to see where it ends up but I know that it is different now um, than it was a year ago. I just want to say thank you to whoever gave those two coats. You have no idea how far your gift went to changing the relationship that I have with my parents and the way that I see myself. You totally opened up an opportunity for God to change my life and the journey that I'm on. So I just want to say There's like a, yeah, it's like a profound tenderness. God got a hold of Harmony. And just, it, and you could tell that her heart had been reoriented toward her own parents. A broken relationship that clearly, you know, it's, it's been strained. And she responded literally with, there are two coats to be given. And somehow or another, God is at work preparing her own heart to live out this thing that God has given to them. I was, you know, it's just in light of all of this stuff, I, was, I had a conversation with a guy this week who said, um, you know, my, um, he's like, uh, I say this, he goes, I I'm, talked to a kid, high school kid, who, this is at a different church, and he said this, um, his mom works at a Christian school. His kid's failing his classes. And mom comes home to the kid and says, you're failing your classes. I have answers to test. You need, to, you need these answers to pass your classes. That kid calls one of my friends. says, what do I do? There is access to things and power that we have that we don't have to use, that there is a heart that turns back to God in which we say, God, what is it that you want to do with me such that my own life would be prepared, my own heart would be prepared for you? Might it look like in some ways it might be this kind of generosity that you see with harmony, it might be this other thing that says, in the midst of a system that says you can be corruptible, don't. John's calling these people to this radical kind of life change. In verse 15 of Luke 3, here's what you get. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, and the straps of whose sandals I'm not even worthy to untie. 
he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now you can see what's ha- an interesting thing starts to happen here. John's talking to these people about having their lives reordered and reoriented toward God. And this is, John's one of about a hundred people that talked about like this during this time. Most of those people who talked like John also claimed to be God's chosen person to call themselves the Messiah. And you can imagine as John's doing all these things and seeing people turn their lives around, he starts to take on some of this. Well, I wonder, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't think I'm the Messiah, but I mean, you know, people are looking at me kind of like I might be. They're all kind of asking me and it kind of feels nice to get that kind of attention. And he says, no, you, you guys, that's not my job. No, I'm, I'm not the Messiah. There's going to be a guy who comes after me and I'm not even unfit to tie his sandals. In other words, what he's saying is, the lowest job for the lowest slave of a particular master is to untie his sandals and wash his feet. That's even too good for me when we talk about this other guy who's to come. And the people are like, wait a second, what are you talking about? There's hundreds of guys who have said, you know, well, some, some people who were, would be messiahs said, let's grab a sword, let's go stab Romans. Some guys said, hey, if you, follow me, let's go leave this area and go live by ourselves and God will rescue us. He'll, the Bible word for that would be, redeem us. And the difference between all of those guys and John is, John didn't want it. His job was simply to prepare the way for God's anointed person, the Christ, the Messiah. That's what John's job was. In fact, he even says it this way in the, the Gospel of John, which is written by another John. There's, two, there's, um, there's some fighting going on, some disagreement between the followers of John the Baptist and Jesus. And here's, and there, and the followers of John the Baptist get a little nervous. And here's what they say in John 3, verse 29 says this The bridegroom the bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice, meaning, I'm waiting for the bridegroom, the groom, to announce that his wedding is happening and we'll all join the parade and go down to the wedding. That joy is mine and it is now complete. He, meaning Jesus, must become greater and I must become less. Everybody's telling him, you get to be the Messiah. If you want it, we'll all believe you. We'll follow you. Look what you're doing. We're seeing life change because of what you're saying. Are you sure you're not the Messiah? And all the followers of John the Baptist are saying, hey, 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 there's another guy out here and he's kind of hogging all the spiritual attention. Let's do something about it. And he says, he should become greater and I should become lesser. It's not my job. I prepare. I'm not Jesus. Some of you in this room have the belief that you are the Messiah. Some of you have the belief in your own families that you have to be the Messiah. That in all of the stuff that's happening, all the people that are coming around, and all the, all the relationships that have to be managed and held together, and all of the decoration and everything else, you bear the burden. I guess I'm supposed to be the Messiah for everybody. I'm supposed to rescue everybody, save everybody, solve everybody's problems. Let me just give you the freedom. You are not the Messiah. You can point to, you can prepare the way, you can have evidence of God's work in your own life, you can be, you can be a part of what God's doing that is a what, quote unquote messianic activity. In other words, you can be a part of what God's doing, but you and I, we're not the Messiah. We're not the Messiah. You don't, get to be the Messiah for yourself. You are not big enough or strong enough to do that on your own. 
and you do not get to be the Messiah for everybody else in your family, even when they say, look at what you can do in holding us together. That's your job. That's what you do. You're the Messiah. Not my job. I can prepare. I can get people ready. I can point people to Jesus, but I cannot be the Messiah. John points to Jesus saying, he does something that only he can do. I don't have that ability. And though you might think I do, I don't. And here's what he says. He says this language in in verse 17. He says this. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And in many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed this good news to them. Strange how that's translated as good news. What he's talking about is like a pitchfork that would pick up a bunch of wheat and then you'd shake it. What would fall out would be the grain that you could use to make bread and things like that. And the rest of it, the stuff that would float away in the dust, that's called the chaff and it's worthless. And John says, I'm not qualified to make that kind of judgment on people. Some of us in this room have borne the burden of I'm the one who holds everybody's eternal destiny in my own hands. I get to judge them. And John says, it's not my, I, I don't get to do that. You have to have a certain level of authority that has eternity in mind, and I don't have that. Jesus does. He gets to do that because he's the Messiah. I'm not him. You and I, we're not the final judge. And we're not the rescuers. We can only point to him. And there's this authority, Jesus, the one who has this winnowing fork which is contrasted against another authority. Verse 19. But when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of his marriage to Herodias, his brother's wife, and all all the other evil things he had done, Herod added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. John is calling out, as he would for all of us, because we could all agree that we're all a work in progress. If you've been with us before, you've heard me say this before. None of us in here has everything together, and none of us has all the answers. Everybody in here is on a journey to figure out what it looks like to follow Jesus and to love other people. Right? You've heard me probably say that before. Now, if you've been with us before. Herod is a guy who has some of his stuff called out publicly, and it's painful. And I get Herod. I understand this. Because it's not like, you know, like, granted, I know that I have things in my life that are not awesome, that are not working out perfectly, that I'm not everything I would hope, not everything, you know, God intended me to be, for sure. And just because you tell me that in my face doesn't mean I'm going to embrace it with open arms, you know? Hey, Jeff, I realize there's some things in your life that are just not awesome. Oh, thank you. You know, like I just, I get what Herod does. Herod's life is being called out, and he exercises a particular kind of authority that he possesses that no one can challenge. Someone raises up something in his own life that would otherwise inhibit God's ability to do something in his life, and he says, you know what, lock that guy up. Get that. Because he's got a dangerous power. He can avoid having to ever really deal with stuff. We like the idea of preparation so long as everything kind of stays the same. You know, I feel like I'm already prepared. Don't mess with everything too much here. Okay, let's just kind of get everything staying the same. But for me, here's how I exercise my own power to silence things that are otherwise uncomfortable for me to deal with. I get to start activating busyness. You know, Jeff, there's some things in your life. Well, you know, I, I, you're right, and I have lots of things. When, when I find a little lull in this season, you know, it's a season. <laughs> I'm going to do a whole message one time called The Myth of the Season. There's no season. It's always crazy, right? 
But I'm in this season of life, and once I kind of get through that, then I'll be able to focus on some of those things. But right now, I'm busy. I'm so busy. Lots of stuff going on. I put those kind of messages, whenever that might come to me in some capacity, I put them behind the noise of my life. There's lots of stuff going on. I got things and people to take care of. I got, you know, this is crazy. I think there's a part of me that even in some way, probably if I was confronted with some of those things, I could bury it and imprison it behind the important church stuff that I get to do. Ah, oh, there's lots of stuff happening at the church. I mean, I am, it's really important stuff. I am too busy to pay attention to the condition of my own heart because I'm taking care of church stuff. That's dangerous. A phone might ring and I might answer it all of a sudden in that room over there. Um, but let me ask you, this Christmas is about, this, this week right now, t- like tomorrow, like tonight, I'll go home, I'll rest a little bit, watch some football, and I'll start prepping t- the Christmas messages. But let me just really quickly, as you prepare for, for you know, at Christmas for Jesus, you have to wrestle with this question too, is what should I do? What should I do? How do you answer that question? What should I do? For a lot of you, as we look at Christmas, Christmas is the quintessential homecoming. Where people go back to the place where they, you know, where they grew up and they're having their family dinners and seeing people they haven't seen in a long time. And they're sitting around a table and looking at each other and going, look at this, it's the family, we're back together. And I think for you in so many ways, in a less literal sense of going to your actual home, what does it look like to come home this Christmas to God? Some of you in big ways have wandered and run away, sprinted away from God. In your whole life, maybe you're, maybe you're here with a friend who brought you. Maybe you just said, i got to go to church. I don't know where I'm going, but, you know, I want to, whatever, whatever you walked. Maybe there's a life that says, I need to turn the whole thing around. But everybody in here has some things where they've given themselves permission to go down a particular path, and that path may need to turn around. What does it look like to come home for you this Christmas? Here's a couple things to think about. One is this. If God is calling you to come back home to him, to prepare, in a sense, for Jesus, what do you need to let go of? What is it that you need to let go of? Is there an attitude? Is there some kind of resentment? Are you storing up ammunition for those people that have wounded you who you then have to pass the mashed potatoes with, and you're kind of like, how, you know, how's that going to go? Honestly. Is there fear? Is there anxiety? Is there, is there some sense that maybe you believe you have to be the Messiah for your own family? What does it look like to let go of some of that stuff? What, does it look, what do you need to let go of? For some of you, what does it mean maybe as you make this U-turn and this homecoming at Christmas? What does it mean for you to take hold of something? What is God saying to you about holding on to a few things that you might be prepared for Jesus at Christmas. Do you need to hold on to real joy, not commercialized, you know, purchased joy, but actual joy? Is it an attitude that you need to grab onto of thankfulness, of gratitude over this past couple of weeks? You spent a lot of time talking about gratitude. How do you fully embrace it? Do you need to go to people? Do you need to hold on to people that are drifting away from you and your family instead of saying, well, I guess that they'll just, they're kind of going away from me. Do you need to hold on to them saying, I just want you to know. I love you, and I want to be with you. I like being near you. Do you need to hold on to the truth that God's great gift at Christmas isn't that he gave us a new morality or a bunch of rules 
or a new private spiritual experience for us, but that he gave us his own son that we might walk with him, not because we were wonderfully talented or gifted, but because we needed him, because we're not the Messiah. What should I do? What do you need to let go of? What do you need to hold on to? We're going to pray together, and then we're going to have a chance to respond in singing. So you close your eyes just a moment? And some of you, I know as I've talked, you probably, there's some things that probably came up for you in your own life that you're considering and wrestling with of what all the implications might be. And maybe you need to receive prayer. Maybe you'd want to walk forward. There's some of our prayer team that would be up here. I'd love to pray with you. Maybe you need to write down your prayer and place it into the prayer wall so it can be prayed for. Jesus, as we gather, as we prepare for you at Christmas, we are a group of people who will take care of lots of details. We will handle lots of things. And generally, Father, the last thing we will tend to is the condition of our own heart. Father, we need you. Remind us that you are the Messiah and that we are not. And there are so many things that we're holding on to that we need to let go of. And there are so many things that we need to hold on to. Jesus, we are people in need. We're people in need of hope and of restoration. Father, would you bring us back to you? We might make a choice to turn around, but in your own power, God, would you grab us and hold us and tell us that you so love us as your own children? Not because we're worthy, but because we're yours. So, Father, we sing these songs and we receive the prayer of the people around us that would come forward because we need it, because we need you, because we're not the Messiah, and you are. So Jesus, we're grateful for you. So we sing and we pray in your name.